0: Hello, and welcome. You're listening to TalkVille21, the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the TalkVille21 podcast for our first episode of 2023. I'm your host, Shane McLaurin, managing editor at TalkVille21. This week, I'm proud to present a very special episode, one that cuts straight to the heart of what we value at T21. I sat down with Alex Hikaleh, a political philosopher, and the 2022-2023 Thomas W. Smith Postdoctoral Research Associate of the James Madison Program at Princeton University. The early 2020s have seen the beginning of the broad unraveling of our post-Cold War modus operandi, the end of the end of history. This has meant a great deal of things, but one key aspect is certainly the difficulty that many countries face in navigating a world rife with security challenges and the erosion of globalization. Nowhere is this more psychologically present than in Europe, where many of the presuppositions undergirding the very way of life have imploded seemingly overnight. In our interview, Adeksi rightly airs Europe's dirty laundry. His criticism highlights the political recklessness and disregard that has dominated for so long in Paris, Berlin, Brussels, and elsewhere. But the true key to his insightful intervention is the note of hope that emerges through an appeal to a greater sense of civic, democratic duty. Make no mistake, dear listener, this is no mere tirade. This is a call to arms. Alexi sikai welcome to Tocqueville
1: 21. Hi, Shane. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So I wanted to talk today about the broad distinctions that exist between the European and American spheres, because the two are often conflated in many ways, particularly in terms of foreign policy and philosophy. And so I thought we could start with something very concrete. And I wanted to talk about the European perspective on the war in Ukraine and how it differs from the U.S. perspective
1: on the war in Ukraine. Well, as you said, those perspectives do not necessarily converge. But in as much as there is a conflation of political positions towards certain events with the West, there is also a conflation of European perspectives. Because if anything, the war in Ukraine also manifests the tension within the European Union on security issues, for example, French and British positions that are more attuned towards the goal of a certain amount of strategic autonomy. Eastern European countries, which by their very position, are certainly much more prone to seek American protection. And the central position of Germany, which to a great extent in the last 20 years has been the driving force on those issues in Europe, and with a position that is much less self-conscious about the dangers that may be posed by, for example, energetic dependence towards Russia. And how uh, does it differ from the American perspective? Well, I I think part of it is that given the fact that the US intends or and exercise a, a sort of world leadership, for them Europe is only one among several theaters It is much less the case from the European perspective, because given our limited capabilities, we tend to have more local preoccupations. And certainly Russia is the main one among them. So there is always a debate among strategic experts in the US about uh, what amount of resources should be devoted to the European theater. Uh, How does it affect the Pacific one? There is a, a balancing issue in the case of the American perspective, which doesn't really exist in Europe.
0: All right. Well, let's leave the Americans for the time being and focus on what you were saying about the diversity of European approaches. So what are some of the broad groups of responses that we have to the Ukraine war? Obviously, we've got you know the German implosion, but we'll get to that later, I suppose.
1: Since the beginning, I think, In the case of France, for example, there has been an attempt while supporting Ukraine to maintain some kind of diplomatic channel with Russia. This has, to a large extent, failed, but I'm not sure we should condemn uh, Macron for having tried. Maybe it was useful for France to perform a kind of other art for the sake of the interests of both Ukraine and the West. Because, as I said, to a large extent, that uh, divergence was largely performative. There there was no question that France wouldn't fully support uh, Ukraine. In the case of armaments, you can see that Eastern European countries have been very prone to, to give them away to the Ukrainian army. But this has also uh, been a way for them to renew their stocks. Because, of course, now they have very good arguments in order to buy new equipments to uh, either the U.S. or other armament industries. For example, I think the French are looking forward to selling different weapon systems to Romania. In the case of Germany, there has been a great reluctance, although at the beginning of the war, the Chancellor Olaf Scholz pledged 500 billion, I think, in military budget. We already see that these objectives have been postponed and that several other issues Germany has been trying to pull back from its commitments. We saw that recently with the issue of the leopards, but this hasn't uh, resisted international pressure and especially pressure from the US. I think in the case of the UK and France, there has been also some kind of reluctance to deliver certain kinds of weapon systems with people mobilized a lot the uh, somewhat absurd distinction between defensive weapons and offensive weapons because in many cases these categories are just very artificial but people are coming to terms with those kinds of reluctance uh, especially given the behavior of Russia and its increasing incapacity to uh, behave in the conflict in such a way that leaves a door open for an ultimate settlement.
0: Given that given Russia's behavior uh, to put it euphemistically uh, what exactly is driving the reticence of well among other countries France and Germany to to increase their support uh, for Ukraine to play to play devil's advocate one of the arguments that i've heard quite a lot is that a rapprochement between Ukraine and the European Union would you know might result on a breaking of France's agricultural monopoly within the uh, Common economic sphere? Mm
1: -hmm. I think more broadly than that, uh, the question of integrating Ukraine to the EU would really be a defining moment on what we intend to make of the EU in the future. To a large extent, I think integration would be a furthering of the way I think mostly Germany perceives the EU. Because it would give it access to cheap materials and goods, uh, cheap labor, and kind of extend the type of relations that Germany has developed with Eastern European countries in the last twenty years, so taking uh, workers from Eastern Europe, uh, making them work on Russian gas supply and selling it to the Chinese surely there I'm no expert on these type of issues, but maybe there is also an economic interest on the part of France to prevent a major agricultural power from joining the EU. But I think beyond that, uh, such a big country integrating the EU would affect the nature of the Union in major political ways and not only unsettle economic situations. I agree to go further on the reticence i think it goes much deeper than national selfishness or geographic proximity i think to a large extent western societies and you could you could even have that argument on the us but i'll, I'll develop further afterwards but western societies have for a long period of time lived under the perception that they had, to some extent, overcome the necessity to expose themselves to the danger of violent death. Our relationship to war, uh, as a product of collective government, has really completely changed since uh, at least the end of the Cold War, but probably even uh, before I think what allowed Putin to carry out his aggression of Ukraine was much less minute calculations about selfish national interest than a more and a simpler psychological understanding of European elites and societies. To some extent, Putin knew that he could carry out that aggression with very low risks of Europeans or even Americans exposing themselves, their lives for the protection of Ukraine. Because to a large extent, although France or the UK are still two countries that are ready to mobilize their armies abroad and killed and be killed, but those are expeditionary forces. A professional army is sent far away, and this doesn't expose society in the same way that, for example, the Ukrainian society is exposed to the danger of war. And I think no one has the political capital to tell its population that uh, such, such an exposure to danger is uh, necessary, legitimate, that one can ask it from its population.
0: This is a thorny question, I suppose, but do you believe that it would be legitimate for European power to come to the defense of Ukraine in a military sense beyond the provision of mere material capital?
1: So that's a much more complex question because it deals with the particulars. And I'm not sure that an intervention was called for. Uh, By that, I mean a direct intervention, as you specified it in your question. But what I limit myself to saying is that Putin knew he could do what he did because he knew it wasn't an option for us. And I think the fact that it's not even an option on the table should lead us to pause and reflect on the very big problem that it implies for security because it means we can be cornered and played by powers that are much inferior in terms of capacities because they know that exposed to the danger to the alternative of uh, exposing ourselves to violent death or finding uh, some kind of leonine compromise, we'll choose the leonine compromise because we really don't want. To be exposed to that uh, danger i couldn 't agree more. I think one of
0: the prevailing narratives is that Putin did not anticipate the Western response to Ukraine, and you correctly point out that that 's not exactly true because the Western response was within the, the the brackets of what he had envisioned. I imagine simply on the more the more robust end, uh, but that being said, you know there hasn 't been any sort of real military response aside from the provision of arms. And, as you mentioned, that would have been materially in many ways that would have been materially and and um, politically impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the European Union simply just has no
1: way of doing that, and there are incentives that are sort of stacked against it. And also one of the facts that is overlooked is that maybe Putin was surprised to the extent of Western support, but that Western support could only show, Because the Ukrainians held their grounds uh, sufficiently Mm. long enough. If they had collapsed, our willingness to send weapons wouldn't have been visible or useful because those things take time. Precisely. The Ukrainians gave us time to help them. But the the most surprising element of that situation is not so much the extent of our support as the fact that, you know, a country exposed to uh, tremendous difficulties... A whole society had the courage to stand up. And if you compare to other situations where regimes which had the sympathy and the support of Western power didn't resist uh, similar aggressions by much inferior adversaries, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan were a few thousands and they toppled the government in a few weeks. Hmm. That really shows us that we should even care more about the issue of moral readiness because we can see that it's a decisive factor in such conflicts. Really, it is what defines the capacity of a country, regardless of the military imbalance, to resist an invasion, because it increases the costs of invasion for the aggressor tremendously by margins that are barely conceivable. It's very hard to submit a population that doesn't want to be submitted. And I think that should be the goal every time we feel that aggressive powers are threatening to resort to uh, military violence. Hmm, I agree.
0: But that being said, I'm not sure we can come to the conclusion that that isn't something that we would encounter in the West. I mean, I don't know, perhaps I'm more optimistic than, than, than you are. There was a moment during the beginning of the war in Ukraine where there was a sense of... This is unprecedented. There's a land war in Europe. You know there was a sense of solidarity that emerged to some degree, and we saw, among other things, the collapse of a lot of the sort of populist nationalist narratives that were favorable to Russia. And I'm thinking particularly this was uh, this was uh, during the time of the French presidential election. Marine Le Pen's relative support of of Putin uh, completely completely collapsed, uh, and and this had a visible effect on the way that the election played out so there certainly is something there a desire you know there was a desire to resist this aggression that being said there is also a substantial amount of distance between the population in france and the population in ukraine who's to say that if an invasion had been closer there wouldn't have been more sympathy
1: mm-hmm. No, so uh, I think you're right. I I don't think you're wrong in being optimistic. And I I don't think I'm less optimistic than you are when talking about societies. You could see, for example, in France during the uh, terror attacks, that people had kept, uh, it, it, it didn't require lots to see people manifest a sense of civic virtue that we had assumed that kind of withered away. But it's interesting because it reminds me uh something that I read in Raymond Aron's book of interview, Le Spectateur Engagé. He, he recalls that one of the first polls in France was made in 1938 during the Munich Agreement, mm-hmm. and a majority of the population uh, was opposed to Hitler's endeavor. And Aron recalls that in the book of interviews, but then he says, but what did that mean politically when people who answered that question didn't need to feel responsible for their answers? Mm. You really would have to have no moral compass to have no sympathy for Ukraine. Mm. But the important question is politically, have you prepared in such a way, is the regime organized and self-conscious in such a way that, that natural moral sympathy is translated into action. And I think that's what should worry us uh, more. Most people have good common sense, and when asked about a situation, they have sometimes, uh, and more often than not, the right opinion. But does that mean anything about their action? Uh, That's the real question. Hmm.
0: And then, of course, there are obvious consequences. It's one thing to hold an opinion, and it's another thing to hold an opinion if it costs you something.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking particularly of the, um, the energy crisis, the very beginning of the energy crisis. A lot of, a lot of energy workers in France went on strike. Uh, yeah. d- during the, um, the energetic blackmail of Russia, they went on strike and basically reduced Europe's capacity to produce additional energy, which had a direct material cost on countries like the Netherlands and Belgium and Germany as well, to some degree. The French government established a price ceiling, which made it impossible for the prices to be driven up too high here, but that wasn't the case for the rest of the European Union, and so these actions mm-hmm. directly impacted the, the quality of life of many of our allies. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, there's that. But on the other hand, there's also Germany who, despite their deep entanglement, their energetic entanglement with Russia, did actually manage to mobilize in such a way that they have created an infrastructure, uh, piecemeal for one, and you know, tentative for another, that actually allows them to meet their energetic needs for the moment. So I suppose I'm circling back to the first question here, which is, what are your thoughts on the various responses of the populations of Europe to this invasion over this well it's been it's been a year now basically
1: <laughs> yeah I, I think it really relates to some deep philosophical and uh, political evolutions within european history to to a large extent, the certainty that we have overcome the age of wars means that there are no longer deep civic commitments that will be asked from us. And therefore, the traditional objects of political deliberation, who are our friends, who are our enemies, what should we do to our friends and our enemies, all these are replaced by what you could call social struggles. Hmm. That is, incremental claims made by segments of the population to uh, shift in a peaceful way the distribution of resources in one sense or another. But that can only be the horizon of our political discourse if essentially we are at the end of history, Hmm. so to speak. I think I was surprised to the lack of practical judgment of people to go on strike in such such a situation. Hmm. It seems quite irresponsible given the stakes to, as you said, curtail not only our capacity to react to possible behaviors by Russia, but also that of our European allies. I really think you can only consider that course of action credible and legitimate if you don't think actions have consequences. Mm. By that, I mean the type of irreversible consequences that wars can have, for example. Mm. When you're dead, you're in debt, you know. Whereas there, there is a sort of almost comic representation of politics that drives these people, a sentiment of reversibility. All that's done can be undone, and vice versa.
0: No, I agree completely. And in this particular case, and, and for the past year, many political actions in Europe have been able to measure their consequences in blood. I know that when I found out about the extent of the strikes, I personally viewed that to be somewhere on the spectrum between um morally heinous and profoundly uh irresponsible Mm -hmm. um that's fair to say mm. but that's yeah that's 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 my perspective on it um so like let's actually if you don't mind could we could we go into that a little bit more uh more in depth what what actually is driving this like how do i put this I believe there is something profoundly illiberal at the heart of that specific issue. There is a matter of liberalism versus illiberalism, specifically in our reaction to the war in Ukraine. And I think both France and Germany, and I'm bringing these two countries up because, you know, in many ways, they're the heart of the European Union, have reacted to them in very different ways. And on the one hand, it's a matter of continuing the merry-go-round that you were just describing, and on the other, adapting to this end of the end of history. Mm-hmm. I, I realize I'm leaving you without a question there, but but yeah. go on ahead.
1: I, I'll try to elaborate on your comments then. I think one of the important aspects of uh, the question that has been you know, largely commented, but people sometimes only drew partial conclusions from it, And I think it's, on the contrary, it's a defining moment for the future of the European Union and the balance of power within the European Union. And I think that France has a role to play if it wants to have any relevance in the coming decades. It has a role to play acting on that defining moment. Because it exposed the frailty and hypocrisy behind the big trends that had been considered as healthy developments in Europe in the last 20 years. To a large extent, the shaping of Europe around the German model has been premised on factors that have been shown to be largely artificial by the war in Ukraine. You know, becoming the largest economy by subjecting yourself to foreign influence Mm -hmm. in such a way cannot be really described in any sense or capacity as an achievement. Mm -hmm. And especially if it's dragging all the other countries of Europe with you in that dependence. I think there has to be hard discussions about the consequences of the German economic policy after the war. Certainly it's not the time right now, but people need to draw conclusions from that and there are reproaches to be made and changes to be effected. Hmm. We really can no longer think it credible that the conditions of the German economic development can be seen as a model by other countries in Europe. If anything, the current events have proven that autonomy with regards to certain strategic resources, agricultural resources, Armament industry, mm. pharmaceutical industry, mm. all these things are of tremendous importance and will be important factors in our capacity to face the challenges of the 21st century. Well, uh, it has redefined also our relationship to China, and all these discussions will be made harder by the fact that uh, you know it's always harder to rescind something that you have than mm. to accept not to gain something that you may gain. Hmm. It is a fact that Germany has been enriched by commercial dependence on China, energetic dependence on Russia. And so it will be hard to accept losing that edge for the sake of autonomy. And I don't think that result can be achieved without a political confrontation within Europe. What worries me is that I don't think France has the political capital, the allies, or the sympathy uh, enough sympathy among its allies to support its claims in that uh, discussion and of course the departure of the uk from the european union isn't helping mm, well i would
0: i don't know i have a i have a slightly different perspective on that i'd say that the um, the constellation of historical french allies could be large enough in this context of german weakness to provide a clear path forward for the european union and i'm thinking most notably i'm thinking of basically 3 countries spain italy and poland
1: mm-hmm.
0: given the current context of what's going on with germany i think that if those four countries could find some some vision for the future upon which they all agreed then there would be a path forward in fact in many ways the presence of the UK and the European Union would have detracted from that because they were often very supportive of the German economic model, mm-hmm. which was ruinous for countries like Spain and Italy yeah. and, and Greece as well. But there's a question I wanted to ask here, which is that you evoke this idea of strategic autonomy. And I agree that this is an incredibly important concept and it's brought up a lot, particularly in the context of the US and China. But it's very different in Europe because, for one... What does strategic autonomy mean within the context of the European Union? And how does that interact with the individual nationalisms of the European Union? So
1: how are we dealing with that particular issue conceptually? If you take the most obvious element of strategic autonomy, which is the military industry, there could be mechanisms or political decisions that foster the development in Europe of the production of some uh, weapon systems we have seen that the production of drones for example could be an interesting capacity to possess for mm-hmm. uh, european nations and that's where cooperation between countries can be useful to compensate for the relative weakness uh, mm-hmm. economic weakness of european nations by pulling resources together we can develop technologies and equipments that meet the standards of modern warfare. Mm -hmm. We've seen that with the um, fighter jets, uh, the French fighter jets, it took a very long time for them to become marketable internationally. But people are realizing that they're actually doing a fine job And in some interesting ways, I heard an American military expert commenting on on this particular segment of weapons and saying that the problem with the American military industrial complex is that they have too much money. So when they have three needs for a a particular segment of weaponry, they want all the needs to be answered in that piece of equipment, Mm -hmm. which sometimes leads them to develop extremely onerous weapons that are not even efficient because they're accomplishing too many tasks mm. and i think it's something that's commonly said of the F35 by comparison poorer uh, industries need to make decisions political decisions what, what is the capacity that we need to the expense of others and making those decisions can allow them to have uh, leaner equipments that are sometimes more efficient with regards to other issues, certainly when discussing free trade agreements, those considerations should be on our minds for agricultural goods, the production of drugs, all these types of things that we had assumed could be dealt with by a sort of common understanding of free market and globalization. Buying the cheapest product is not always a good policy if as was obvious during covid or during the war in ukraine suddenly the supply chain is completely upset and these goods that seemed to be a very good deal are no deal at all because they're not coming to your country because the countries that are producing them would rather keep keep them for themselves in the coming decades we will need to come to terms with our illusions towards the efficiency of the international division of labor. Hmm. In many cases, although it's uh, more expensive to produce things at home, if these things are of absolute necessity, then we should make room for the fact that we need to produce them less efficiently, Hmm. but more reliably. I agree completely.
0: And I believe this is a discussion that is being had all over Europe. There was a broad consensus particularly in the context of pharmaceuticals in the aftermath of the first couple of months of the COVID epidemic but i the question that underlies that really is in this context of the european union what is domestic production what counts as internationally produced versus domestically produced because on the one hand you know theoretically you could say uh, so long as the production is within the european union everything's fine but on the other hand, the economic decisions of countries like Germany, and I'll be even-handed here, you know, there, are, there are plenty of decisions made by the French, particularly with regards to agriculture, that negatively impact partners within the European Union. Many of these decisions have a detrimental effect on many of our allies. I suppose the question under this is, you know, sure, we need to produce things, but who is us? What is us? Can the members of the European Union trust other members of the European Union? Is there a sort of collective here, are we coming to a moment where there will be a collective in Europe? Is there any ideological unity of purpose and sense of potential leadership? Is that the question that we're facing at the moment?
1: I mean, politically, it's a totally fair question. And when French officials complain about Eastern European countries buying American instead of French, I think there is a bit of hypocrisy, because uh, if Eastern Europeans buy American, it's also because They think the U.S. is paradoxically more reliable than an ally that's a few thousand kilometers to their West, and that in times of need, they can count on them in a way that they can't count on us. But those things can and should change. And if the big players within the European Union want to be serious about defense issues, uh, they need to show resolve, uh, determination. And I think things are are shifting somewhat. As I mentioned in the beginning, the fact that France sent some of its uh, capacities in Romania has, for example, led the authorities there to consider shifting some of its purchases of military equipment towards uh, European options. Hmm. So yeah, that will require from France displays of its uh, resolution to follow through with Hmm. those objectives and be a reliable partner. But I think if you look at counterterrorism, the work that was done in Mali certainly was made on the basis of a strictly national policy, but it also benefited the whole Union in stabilizing the region and preventing the spread of Islamic terror to uh, the whole Gulf. Hmm. although this has ended quite poorly with the arrival of Wagner in in the country, but Those things go both ways. To an extent, countries are right to distrust the fact that their partners will follow through with their commitments. Mm. But on the other hand, there is a huge incentive from the part of many countries to be free riders in Mm. terms of uh, security, enjoy the benefits and bear none of the costs. Mm. You can't really make that accusation with France and the UK. Those two countries you can always criticize on the margin but to a large extent have maintained capacities especially at the technological level within Europe. Hmm. Poland is making tremendous efforts especially given the size of its economy towards the same end. So I think as you as you mentioned Poland would be a really crucial partner in reshaping the balance of power and the list of priorities within the EU.
0: Hmm. Well that brings up another question, which is, with regard to what you were saying earlier about Macron's desire to interface with Putin and to negotiate, there has always been, uh, historically, a desire for the French to go it alone with regards to the rest of Europe. And in many ways, many people view Macron's desire to discuss terms with Putin to be exactly that, not a manifestation of the, the common will of the European Union, but specifically a desire for an advancement of French national interests. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I think I won't judge the pertinence of his attitude on that particular case, but from the look of it, it seems to me a quite typical aspect of French foreign policy since at least Charles de Gaulle. Hmm. I think people often misread that type of attitudes from the part of the French government. So if you look at the goals withdrawal from the uh, integrated command of NATO and the development of an autonomous nuclear capability by the French government from the look of it it seems oh you know he's contesting or calling into question US leadership and that's bad etc but from the very American point of view it was i mean it was in, in the interest of the Americans to have a second player Uh, Mm -hmm. in terms of nuclear weapon in Europe, because it allowed them, by being autonomous and uh, aggravating, the French were actually securing uh, the American position, preventing it from being cornered, for example, on one side of the globe, and being compelled to accept a Russian aggression on another side of the globe. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of what the Americans were ready to do or not to do, they couldn't speak for the French. You could see that uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Gaulle was the first head of state to affirm that if things went wrong, France would go to war on the side of the US. So autonomy never meant for the French a departure from the alliance. But from their point of view, the tightness of the alliance could only be constructed around a strong national autonomy. Hmm. A partnership of equals. To a large extent, I mean, the specificity of the Western alliance is precisely that, that if a country makes its own voice be heard, there won't be American tanks marching through the main streets of its capital a few weeks later. People want to be within that alliance because it's, you know, essentially different from some kind of Western Varso Pact. What makes it valuable is also that those disagreements can be voiced. Uh, yeah, I think it's rather a quality of, of our political hemisphere than one of its liabilities. You've reached the end of the first part of our interview with
0: Adixi Tune in soon for the gripping conclusion. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com That's T-O-C-Q-U-E V-I-L-L-E 21.com And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz No. 9 Opus 40 for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com